<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Good morning. Welcome to the Bill Press Show. I'm Sabrina Siddiqui, political reporter at The Guardian, filling in for Bill on this Friday morning, Friday. A lot to talk about today. An explosive hearing in the House of Representatives with former FBI agent Peter Strzok, as well as some stunning new comments by President Donald Trump about the UK Prime Minister, Theresa May, just before they are due to sit down and meet in London. A whole lot to get through uh, with our great team here in the studio. We've also got some great guests coming up. Uh, Ray Rogers, our producer. Uh, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning, Sabrina. I'm doing well. Do uh, I, uh, you have any good plans this weekend? This weekend, I'm going to a kid's birthday party at a petting zoo. Oh, that's very exciting. Which is super exciting. <laughs> I feel like it's one bright spot in a slew of gloomy news no are you are you trying to imply that the news hasn't been all that positive lately um i think that friday the 13th today is an accurate Ooh. date and time for this to fall i didn't realize it was friday the 13th oh i'm sorry famous last words People get, i know dun 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 <laughs> <laughs> so tell us what's good yeah, so let's see. We have lots of great guests for you today. We have Jack Jenkins from the report um, from Religion News Service. We have our friend Dara Lind mm. in at 8 a.m. She's a senior reporter at Vox, but she covers all things immigration. She's great. And we also have our friend Jen Bendery from HuffPost, and she is here to talk all things court. Um, she has been following the overwhelmingly white, straight male appointments from Donald Trump, and she's <laughs> here to talk some more about that. Well, it sounds like it's going to be a fantastic lineup. Um, of course, the battle for the Supreme Court uh, is heating up. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh, the president's uh, nominee, has been making his way this past week through the hallways of the Senate trying to woo over the lawmakers who ultimately hold uh, his fate in their hands, although I think it's expected to be fairly, uh, maybe not smooth, uh, but, but that he would be confirmed. I think that it will be fairly smooth. That's kind of the consensus of everyone that has come through our show. I mean, of course, there's still hope because there is still a path to blocking his nomination um, and confirmation. But 
I I don't know. I think it'll be a tough battle for the Democrats. Yeah, I mean, you should, of course, tweet us your thoughts. Uh, I think the big question is, what can and de- what can and should Democrats do uh, to try and uh, block uh, the president's Supreme Court nominee from moving forward? And you can tweet us at BP Show. Yeah, and BP if you want to sound off on anything else, such as uh, the president upending all of our relationships with key U.S. allies, both at the NATO summit and then now as he is in uh, the U.K., of course, he is due to sit down with Vladimir Putin next week in Helsinki. Uh, what to expect from there? We're eager for your thoughts. So uh, do engage with us while we're here through the next uh, couple of hours. Yeah. So you can also weigh in in our YouTube chat room, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. We also do um, a podcast every day and on the weekends, which you can have first access to if you subscribe on Patreon. That is www.patreon.com slash BP Show. But also all of our podcasts are available wherever you may download them. So you can find it at our website or on iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and comment. So we're going to get into it today. Um, and let's see. We have some comments already. Oh, wow. Yeah. People are constantly tweeting us. So yesterday we put up a poll about whether or not Kavanaugh will actually be um, confirmed. And we've had a lot of differing opinions, like I said. Some people are still really clinging on to hope, and others are sort of taking a defeatist attitude towards this. It's still up for the next 34 minutes, so you can weigh in now. Have your thoughts there at BP Show. On TV and online. This is the Bill Press Show. All right. I don't even know really where to begin this morning because there is a lot to wake up to, a lot to digest and dissect. Uh, namely, the president giving an explosive interview with the Rupert Murdoch owned son uh, in the UK. And he's set to, he was poised to sit down with Theresa May. He already, of course, uh, just came back from NATO, where a lot of his comments questioning uh, the future of the alliance uh, ruffled just a few feathers among European allies. And now he's going after the prime minister for what many are calling a soft Brexit. Of course, that was the decision taken by voters there to exit the European Union. Uh, Theresa May has been dealing with a great deal of opposition to what appears to be a lack of a plan on how exactly to uh, oversee and carry out uh, that Brexit, as you would call it, um, with Boris Johnson, of course, the foreign minister, having just resigned earlier this week. Uh, and and President Trump decided he was going to get right in the middle of it, criticizing Theresa May uh, for her handling of the entire Brexit issue. I would have done it much differently. Uh, I actually told Theresa May how to do it, but she didn't agree with She didn't listen to me. And then he also went ahead and lavished praise on Boris Johnson, uh, n- not necessarily endorsing him over Theresa May, but all but doing that. I'm not 
pitting one against the other. I'm just saying I think he'd be a great prime minister. Yeah. I think he's got uh, what it takes, and I think he's got the right attitude to be a great prime minister. So I do like how he said that he told Theresa May how to do Brexit as if he knows how to do As if he knows how to Brexit, do literally anything. anything. <laughs> like, yeah. He goes to NATO, and the only line that he has over and over is, we're paying too much, you're not paying enough. There's, like, no nuance to anything that he does. There's no nuance. He doesn't... I, it would shock me if he even knows what the UK is. And, frankly, because you brought up the defense spending commitments under NATO, and the president has made this a, a major issue, he's weaponized it to uh, criticize some European allies for not paying their fair share... Um, the two percent, the the agreement has long been in place that each uh, member country would pay two uh, percent of its GDP toward its military, uh, and it's true that there are other administrations who have criticized some member countries for not uh, paying as much as they should or fulfilling those commitments. But there's a way, of course, to have those conversations rather than coming in as President Trump did and levying threats against key allies, suggesting he would pull out U.S. troops from Germany, saying that Angela Merkel um, is, captive. is captive to Russia, when, frankly, a lot of people might think would say that maybe this president is and that, that's a captive to Russia. Projection. <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. Tell us how you really feel. And um, it, it, it's, it's very much within the same vain that he goes into this uh, meeting with you know, a long-standing U.S. ally, one of the closest U.S. US allies when we're talking about the U.K., uh, and is already essentially lighting a fire uh, before there has even been a conversation around some potential bilateral uh, negotiations between the U.S. and the U.K., which, by the way, uh, now the president doesn't believe might even be possible because, again, he has issues with uh, Brexit and the way it's been handled. No, if they do that, uh, I would say that that would probably end a major trade relationship with the United States. So a lot of tough talk, um, but much like NATO, where he railed about the defense spending limits, mm -hmm. he didn't actually achieve anything there, and there's little reason to believe he's going to achieve anything when he sits down with Theresa May, he he left NATO taking credit for the member countries allegedly having agreed to spend more because he pressed them on this issue. When in fact, all that happened was that they agreed to the commitments that had already exactly. been hashed out before he was even president. Right. The secretary general yesterday, we played this audio of him basically coming out and saying, like, we're we've already committed to two percent. Why don't we work on hitting that before we discuss increasing anything? Right. And frankly, a lot of military experts will say that the 2% figure is not a magic number. And it, when it was agreed upon, it was not with the f foresight that someone would come in and singularly focus mm -hmm. on this one metric as though it's the be-all, end-all of the security alliance that is NATO, uh, there are certainly needs for reform when it comes to NATO. There are questions that we can ask about its role in the world today and what that should look like. But uh, certainly no one thinks that the 2% issue holds 
uh, the answer to every single challenge that they face. It's also important to remember, of course, that if we're even talking about this concept upon which it was founded as a security alliance, the only, the one and only time that Article 5 was even invoked was after 9-11 and other countries, these same allies, came to the came to support the United States uh, and rose to its defense. So, you know, these comments, of course, uh, they don't necessarily mean that that wouldn't happen tomorrow if we were in a similar situation, but it certainly deteriorates relations and raises a question as to whether the U.S. can be counted on. That's what a lot of allies are asking, and they could very well respond in kind. Right. I mean, there's no guarantee. With Trump, I feel like he's... Only focusing to your point on that 2% metric because he doesn't have a deep understanding of what NATO is, what it does, what its current role is, what its role in past years was. He doesn't understand any of the history, and so he can't speak to anything other than one number that has somehow lodged itself in his brain. And he thinks that throwing out this little factoid makes it seem like he understands what's happening in the world, and he frankly doesn't. And of course... After he has angered just a few of our key allies, he is set to meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin in Helsinki next week. Uh, He also had some comments to make about whether or not he is too cozy with uh, Putin. And let's take a listen. We're going to get that for you in just a second. Oh, there it is. He's a competitor. You know, somebody was saying, is he an enemy? He's not my enemy. Is he a friend? No, I don't know him well enough. So, <laughs> you just a- have to laugh at it. I mean, like, okay, we just had Jordan Fabian on um, two days ago, right, from yeah. The Hill, mm-hmm. White House reporter. And like he was saying, Trump is touting this meeting with Putin as if it's some kind of, like, earth-shattering, huge step forward for the relationship between the U.S. and Russia. But don't forget that Our president has already met with Putin two times. So it's not like this is some huge step forward that like he's creating a line of communication where there formerly wasn't one. It's just him meeting with a friend. And frankly, I think he wants to have another historic summit the way he did with Kim Jong-un. Sure. Great deal of pomp and circumstance around that meeting and although nothing of substance appears to have come from it as of yet the negotiations are ongoing they have broken down uh in the past few weeks one can at least say that it was the first time that a sitting u.s president had met with a leader of north korea so yes that was a, a historic summit insofar as it even taking place right but as you note this president has already met with putin twice on the sidelines of other international summits and frankly previous presidents have sat down with vladimir putin this is that's not although there has been a hostile relationship it is 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 not akin to north korea where there is simply no interaction between leaders of the two countries and i think he wants to be able to play up another reality tv style spectacle in part because there is so much baggage with and i think in some ways he's playing to that baggage he knows that there will be a great deal of fascination and what a meeting between President Trump and President Putin would look like against the backdrop of increased scrutiny over his relationship uh, or the U.S. relations with Russia, especially with the investigation into Russian interference in the U.S. election. 
which, by the way, uh, he claims that he is going to raise uh, when he sits down face to face with Putin. We want to find out about Syria. We will, of course, ask your favorite question about meddling. I will be asking that question again. So he will ask it again as if he got a satisfactory answer the first time. Well, the other thing that's striking about that is we don't know, of course, ultimately what was said sometimes when he met with Putin on the sidelines. In fact, because their very first um, huddle, Mm -hmm. if you could call it that, that they did to great controversy took place with Trump not even having a translator present and there not, not being an official record beyond what the Russians had to say about the conversation. Exactly. Um, and when he spoke with uh, Putin a couple months ago by phone after the election in Russia where he congratulated him on his victory despite the big text that was placed in front of him saying do not congratulate in caps. In that conversation, White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders subsequently said that election meddling didn't come up. So I'm not exactly sure when he asked Vladimir Putin about Russian meddling before. I'm going to guess never. (laughs) As he claims. Also because you have to recall that he sees any conversation around Russian interference in the U.S. election as an attack on his legitimacy as president. And sure, and I think that comes through even in the clip that we just played where he's, he kind of says it in a flippant tone and he yeah. phrases it as your favorite question yeah. about meddling. You would think that the sitting president, it would be his favorite question as well. Right, especially when the entire U.S. intelligence community and the intelligence communities of key allies, yep. excuse me, the, the five eyes as they are called, which includes the U.K., includes Britain, includes Australia, um, they have also assessed the germans have assessed that the u.s uh that the u.s election was interfered with by the russians because some of those same allies were the ones who initially tipped off right the intelligence authorities here in fact it was the the initial intel did come from um the uk and then it was of course uh an australian diplomat with whom uh, then foreign policy advisor to trump campaign george papadopoulos bragged about having contacts with the russians and an offer uh, to the Trump campaign to help take down Hillary Clinton, that they had incriminating information about her. And, of course, Australia being a close ally, that, uh, I think it was the ambassador, one of them then reported that as well to the appropriate authorities here. So then that triggered the Russia investigation. And lest so, we forget that the intelligence community has said that there are ongoing efforts to undermine the 2018 election in a few months. So, I mean... You would think that it would be the president's favorite question, too. You would think so. Um, but it's it's something that we know he has not really prioritized or even put on his agenda of issues uh, to really dedicate resources to. In fact, his intelligence chiefs have themselves testified on Capitol Hill that not enough is being done to to prevent future attacks, to disrupt Russian cyber attacks at the source raising concerns about, of course, the 2018 midterms. And additionally on Capitol Hill, rather than focusing on some of those more substantive comments when it comes to what we're doing about Russia, there was an entirely different spectacle that transpired yesterday. It did have to do with Russia, but not in the way that we've just been talking about. Former FBI agent Peter Strzok, who was... Um, reassigned from special counsel Robert Mueller's team a year ago. Uh, He came to testify before the House Judiciary Committee 
for nearly 10 hours, he was grilled about anti-Trump text messages that he had s- exchanged with former FBI agent Lisa Page, who has since left the bureau. And uh, the two of them were condemned in an inspector general report. It's worth noting that no one said that the text they exchanged on a official government phones were appropriate, that they were wise, uh, because those texts did show that they had an antipathy toward uh, then-candidate Trump. But the same IG report, which was released just a couple months ago and examined the FBI's handling of the Hillary Clinton email investigation, did not find any evidence that there was any kind of widespread bias toward Trump at the FBI nor did it find that these anti-Trump text messages necessarily affected their individual agent, the agency's wor- work overseeing some of the investigations, whether it was the Trump and Russia or Hillary Clinton and the emails. Nonetheless, fireworks, uh, as Peter Strzok was grilled about these texts, and he gave a pretty robust response as to why he at one point during the campaign texted that they would not let trump win the election it was in response to a series of events that included then candidate trump insulting the immigrant family of a fallen war hero and my presumption based on that horrible disgusting behavior that the american population would not elect somebody demonstrating that behavior to be president of the united states so he was of course talking about uh khizr khan's uh very memorable speech at the democratic national convention uh where he spoke of his son's sacrifice for this country in the armed services and trump then in the following days attacked uh, the Khan family, including Khizr Khan's wife, who didn't uh, and made all kinds of suggestive comments invoking their faith. Of course, the family was Muslim, uh, repeated punching bag uh, of the of then candidate Trump's on the campaign trail were Muslims. And so uh, interesting that Strzok is saying that, you know, when I said to Lisa Page, you know, we won't let Trump win. Um, he was saying he, he was he was basically explaining that when he said we, he didn't mean the FBI, of course. He meant the collective we, the American people, because he didn't think uh, that the U.S. would possibly elect someone who had made such incendiary comments time and again. Um, but even if you take the Republican interpretation of it, which they have claimed without any evidence that he was talking about the FBI stopping uh, mm-hmm. then candidate Trump. The thing that's most striking about that suggestion is here's a guy who knew that the FBI was investigating contacts between the Trump campaign and Moscow and was very concerned with what he had seen. And then he had all this information and he did nothing with it. He didn't leak it. And Trump was elected president in November, so if there was a grand conspiracy, I'm trying to figure out where where it exactly played out, because if anything, the biggest criticism that has come of the FBI was that they were so public and forthright in the way that they talked about the Clinton investigation. Sure, but there they, was a lot of political but there was bias very, in how Comey handled that. Right, and there was very little actually said about the Trump-Russia investigation. The American public didn't actually know that the campaign itself was under investigation until after the election. Sure. And 
I mean, the fact that Comey had, I guess, departed from standard protocol and had written this formalized letter to Congress about the Clinton ongoing investigation into our emails and had not done the same, not even approaching the same for the Republican candidate. I mean, I think that's a fair that's actually a fair criticism of how the FBI handled things. In fact, um, there was a story in the New York Times that this was, I believe, in October, but it was prior to the election that continues to give a lot of people a great deal of frustration because of the framing. And now the Times is probably going off of what they were told by people at the agency, but it essentially said FBI sees no links to Trump in in this investigation into Russian interference in the election. When, of course, what we've seen since is the indictment of more than 20 uh, individuals in Mueller's probe, not all of whom, but at least four of whom, if five of whom are associates of Trump, who few of whom worked on the campaign, in the early days of his administration, like Michael Flynn, of course, the former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, uh, the former foreign policy advisor. We talked about George Papadopoulos, Carter Page, and the list goes on and on. We've talked about a lot of those people on this show time and again. So so meanwhile, Republicans, knowing all of this, uh, were much more intent to grill Strzok about, um, you know, what what kind of bias he may have held against uh, Trump and it's kind of remarkable they could spend 10 hours on this. It's worth noting he actually did testify bef- privately before this. He has appeared before the committee before, but they wanted to do it publicly because, as everyone knows, congressional hearings are now little more than theater and an opportunity for everyone to grandstand. Yeah, exactly. I mean, 10 hours over this when, exactly as you said, we've already kind of gone over it. There was already an investigation into this. It was... It was essentially what it boils down to, two colleagues who had a friendly friendly relationship letting their guard down in an inappropriate way. Like, I think that we can all agree that they shouldn't have said these things, especially on work-issued devices. Right, and, and it's certainly fair to say that once these text messages were, just were uncovered, it, that Robert Mueller had little choice but to reassign uh, struck from the investigation, and, and that and makes I think sense. that's fair. It makes and that's total well, sense. Frankly, if anything, it seems that all the procedures have been followed because that is what you would expect a fair and independent investigation to do. To say, well, you know, even if you say you can work without bias on this investigation, unfortunately, these texts do show it undermines um, your credibility. Yeah, it undermines your credibility. Uh, they show, you know, your feelings about the person, one of the subjects of the investigation, potentially. Um, but in any case, it's it's there were also ugly moments where there were there was a confrontation from Louis Gohmert about, you know, the, the affair that transpired between Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. My favorite probably was Congressman Gosar of um, Arizona who is a dentist and apparently when you're a dentist it means you're really good at reading body language um he literally said sir i am a dentist i know how to read body language he said it to a former fbi agent i think that fbi agents know a thing or two about how to read body language um but i think 
I do want to kind of go back though to because it, you know we could talk about this, but I don't want to take up eleven or ten hours talking about this, <laughs> <laughs> talking about something that I, I think frankly doesn't have many legs. Um, just to kind of bring things full circle though, while that's while there's a sideshow happening, you know, in the in the hearing rooms of Capitol Hill, the president is inflicting very. Uh, potentially long-lasting damage on relationships between the United States and key allies. And in addition to all the comments he made about Theresa May, he also reignited his feud with the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, and we'll, we'll hear his comments and then we'll talk about them first. You have a, a mayor who's done a terrible job in London. He's done a terrible job. Um, and if you don't want me take also. a look at the terrorism that's taking place. Look at what's going on in London. I think he's done a terrible job. Now, this is dates back to the terrorist attack in London at London Bridge last summer, and the president then criticized Sadiq Khan, the Muslim mayor of London. Worth noting that he's Muslim because. One wonders if he weren't, if the president would be this vocal in his criticism. I suspect not. Right. And uh, at the time, he drew a rare rebuke from Theresa May uh, for doing that. Um, she, and, and frankly, people were in the UK reacted very uh, negatively to his comments, not only because of the timing where it was in the immediate aftermath of a terrorist attack, but also because blaming the mayor for the fact that there that there are very real national security concerns not just here but everywhere and that there are certain incidents that will take place there are people who will slip through the cracks it was in poor taste um but in general i think what trump was trying to do was to tie this to immigration which he also talked about in europe um just this idea that immigrants are flowing into the country allowing millions and millions of people to come in to Europe uh, is very, very sad. I think you're losing your culture. It's classic Trump race baiting. This is red meat to his base. And it's, 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 it's one thing if he is going to make such comments here in the United States. He is the president. He was elected after a very uh, clear uh, anti-immigrant campaign. It's objective to say that he ran an anti-immigrant campaign, um, specifically if we're talking about non-European immigrants. And, you know, but it's another thing to go to Europe and lecture countries over there on their own immigration policies. But frankly, that's a great uh, source of his contention with Angela Merkel. That is exactly where a lot of their uh, feud, if you could call it a feud, began with the president criticizing Merkel for because Germany has accepted hundreds of thousands of refugees, which, frankly, more countries should have done. Certainly the United States did not. No, and that falls on both Obama and on Trump, to be quite frank about it. But also there's one more clip that I wanted to play because this is sort of the spin of Trump, right? Here we have him uh, going on and making more comments about immigration. So here, we, let's just let the president speak for himself. They like me a lot in the UK. I think they agree with me on immigration. <laughs> and yet um, here we have a baby blimp on full display. <laughs> Activists are trying to make American Idiot hit the top of the charts over there. We have 
protesters flooding the streets. I think it's safe to say that they are not happy with how President Trump is handling. It's certainly safe to say uh, that there are a great deal of protests, as you just noted, in uh, across, along the streets of London. Um, you know, look, there are far-right leaders who have also seized on this anti-immigrant sentiment in Europe, but uh, I don't think that the president's views on immigration speak for all of the UK. Um, we'll leave it there, and we will be back after a short break with Jack Jenkins, so stay tuned to The Bill Press Show. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Welcome back to The Bill Press Show. Sabrina Siddiqui here, political reporter at The Guardian. Uh, Ray, what are people telling us on uh, Twitter? We have lots of comments coming in on Twitter. So we had um, put up a tweet yesterday about Senator Collins um, and her flattering comments about Kavanaugh. Um, and Addie from Think Progress said, Senator Collins is not your feminist hero. It's a cynical game she's playing, but she is not who many want her to be. And we had some response to that. Fight Fire with Fire said, we need courageous women. I am sorry, but Senator Collins' behavior is immoral and spineless. And then we also have Jan saying, we know Senator Collins and we will all throw a victory party when we replace her with a real patriot in the Senate. And then we also have people weighing in on the issues of the day in our chat room on youtube.com slash the bill press show. We have Donna Miller saying, I sat on the floor watching that hearing yesterday um, and threw my shoes at the TV. It was a good way to re relocate the dust. And one last comment, we have Slarty um, in the chat room saying, in response to Trump's comments that Putin is neither friend nor foe. Slardy says, if he's been meddling in our election, he is our enemy because he helped the Trump get elected in the Trump hole wouldn't consider him one. Well, a lot of strong feelings out there this morning. Uh, keep on engaging with us. Of course, you could do that uh, on Twitter at BP Show in our chat room as well. Um, well, a lot of feelings about Senator Susan Collins, who, of course, is viewed as one of the uh, key potentially swing votes uh, when it comes to the confirmation battle for Brett Kavanaugh. Of course, that is President Trump's uh, nominee to replace uh, Justice Anthony uh, Kennedy on the Supreme Court. We're going to get a lot more on that with Jack Jenkins, who is here with us in studio, reporter for Religion News Service. Good morning, Jack. How are you? I'm well. Um, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, obviously, the announcement um, came on Monday uh, evening, and mm -hmm. uh, this wasn't necessarily unexpected. Uh, certainly, Brett Kavanaugh's name had been added to Trump's shortlist uh, last fall, I mm -hmm. believe, and uh, you know he was one of the top contenders. Some say, according to a lot of reports, that the decision had already been made, but right. <laughs> the, the president does like to engage in a fair amount of theater so we mm -hmm. nonetheless had the who will get the rose moment um monday after all is the bachelor night bachelor <laughs> night so maybe it was oh, all that's true it was uh, all accordingly timed and planned uh but uh so you know obviously you cover issues pertaining to some of the big questions uh that i think a lot of people have about brett kavanaugh uh 
and and I, I want to start with actually Roe v. Wade just because this is f- this focus on Susan Collins mm-hmm. and actually Lisa Murkowski, a senator from Alaska. These are two uh, Republican uh, women in the Senate who bill themselves as supporting uh, pro-choice uh, mm-hmm. nominees. Uh, certainly, they've said they would not support someone who would vote in favor of overturning Roe. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to Brett Kavanaugh, what do we actually know about his position here? Right. So the this is always kind of the, the crystal ball interpretive lens that we all kind of use when a justice um, gets nominated because we don't we often don't have a really clear picture of how they might stand on something like that. And um, that is also true of Kavanaugh. We know that he dissented in a case, um, a recent case where um, at the uh, district level, he um, the court ruled to allow an undocumented immigrant to have an abortion um, while you know being in detention. Right. It was and a he, teenager, I believe. Exactly. Yeah. And he dissented in that case. Um, so for kind of, you know, um, uh, anti-abortion activists, that's a promising sign for them. He also uh, came out yesterday that he delivered a talk at the American Enterprise Institute um, last year in which he praised Justice Rehnquist um, for dissenting in Roe v. Wade, specifically lauded that justice for doing so. Now, technically, that's not the same thing as saying that he would want to overturn Roe v. Wade. It's one, it's one thing to say how brave you were in that moment. It's another thing to say that after decades and decades of precedent, um, you know, I, as this justice, would come in and overturn it. Um, but for when it comes to abortion, if, if you're the religious right right about now, um, those are certainly some encouraging signs. So that's kind of the, the closest we've got in terms of parsing out those bits so far. Because, mm, I, I, you know, I kind of think back to Neil Gorsuch, and, and one thing Susan Collins has said is that, you know, at the time, uh, Neil Gorsuch privately assured her, reassured her even, that he would not, um, you know, he was a big believer in precedent. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the questions that, you know, she had asked him about where where he would eventually fall on Roe v. Wade, which I don't think is necessarily indicative when there's no real paper trail um, mm-hmm. that so clearly states how someone might uh, in- interpret one of these decisions. In fact, if you look at Neil Gorsuch, he just voted in favor of breaking with a 41-year precedent with the Janus case, which, mm-hmm. of course, significantly weakened public sector unions. So, you know, if you're then taking a look at Roe v. Wade, for, I think first, just for a lot of people, I, I don't think they necessarily understand how this might even play out um, in terms of would would it actually be chipping away maybe at the protections that are granted um, as opposed to outright overturning it? How how does that process actually play out at the Supreme Court level? Right. So that's that's a really interesting question and an important one. So, for instance, with Gorsuch, um, Gorsuch made a big deal when he was being nominated that uh, to, to jump to another topic, same-sex marriage, that Ogreville v. Hodges, you know, legalizing same-sex marriage was absolutely established law. Like he was like he got flustered when he talked about it because he wanted to make sure that that was clear to everyone that that was his position. But less important than whether or not he wants to overturn that decision is whether or not he sides with conservative Christian, usually Christian visions of, quote unquote, religious liberty, which LGBT activists have consistently argued is a a, uh, a morphed version of what religious liberty used to be and is one that's being used to effectively discriminate against LGBTQ people. 
And he um, and Gorsuch, while he may have maintained that um, that Oberfell was rightly decided, or at least that it's precedent, um, him siding with this version of religious liberty is clear. You know, he wrote uh, in a he wrote a sub dissent in um, a recent case where he just wanted to make sure everyone knew in a little footnote that he was even more into religious liberty in a Supreme Court case than everyone else in the court. And um, and that's important for LGBT activists because that means that well, while he may not overturn a major court decision, if, if all of the court decisions that come to him are just him chipping away at those rights um, as from the perspective of LGBTQ people – um, then that then that becomes the real issue at play. And with Kavanaugh, that could also be the same case. We don't know a lot about his perspectives on LGBTQ issues, but um, if he sides with the conservative um, overriding vision for religious liberty, functionally it won't really matter because at the end of the day, he might be just you know pulling away parts of these laws to where they, they don't function the same way that mm. they were decided. Um, in the initial uh, cases. So that's that's really what we're looking at. And with Kavanaugh, it's been interesting because, um, and it, it's important to note, Kavanaugh, obviously the initial uh, assessments, this is not, he is not an Anthony, um, a, a Kennedy. He is not this, you know, more moderate vo- um, voice. You know, initial assessments put him just left of Clarence Thomas right. um, if he gets put on the court. And that'll make, uh, you know, this uh, the, the head justice, actually the new swing vote. Um, Roberts will be the swing vote on the court if Kavanaugh gets put on there. But technically, um, there's a big debate among conservative Christians right now about whether or not Kavanaugh is conservative enough mm. on some of these issues. And is it because they just don't know enough about him? Um, uh, you know, as you know, uh, you know, a lot of the legal scholars and judicial watchers who uh, take a close look at these candidates and their records, they, as you rightfully noted, have said that he would be just to the left of Clarence Thomas, right. effectively saying he'd be the second most conservative <laughs> member of the bench if he right. was uh, confirmed. And... He did work in the Bush administration mm-hmm. in the in you know, President George W. Bush's White House. Uh, he has authored close to 300 opinions. There's a lot there. Um, mm-hmm. there, there are, of course, emails now that uh, Democrats want uh, to review from his time in the White House. So there could be a lot of written material, just perhaps uh, you know, not necessarily as clear-cut as some of the issues that he will have to contend with during his conference. Uh, but what is it that conservatives are, are most worried about? Right. And, and it's it's this he's basically two things at once. Right. Like he has this bona fide you know, conservative record where you know he was a lawyer for the Bush campaign during the Florida recount. He helped author the Ken Starr report, you know, apparently helped Jay Sekulow, one of Trump's own lawyers in like a religious liberty case in 2000. So he has this sort of like deep conservative history. And, you know, the there was that dissent he wrote in that. Um, abortion case that we mentioned before for the un, um, mm-hmm. undocumented immigrant, and he also dissented in a case about the Affordable Care Act, about the contraceptive coverage, which you would think would be promising to conservative Christians. But interestingly, they're not super stoked about that dissent because people like um, David French at the National Review say that it wasn't conservative enough because it would appear that Kavanaugh 
um, conceded, um, or at least their argument is that he conceded, that the government might have a compelling interest for providing contraceptive coverage even to a religious group, um, but they should find another way of doing it. And so uh, that would set off alarm bells in some conservative circles to the point where the American Family Association, which is this fundamentalist Christian group, actually opposed his nomination initially. Now they've kind of walked back and are saying, well, we'll just let, let it all like play out. But that's kind of the conversation they're having is that, you know, he might not be precisely the, the vision of conservatism that they wanted. They, they think I think the, the, the ideal for this group was um, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, which right. was one of the other potentials. So And now with Amy Coney Barrett, because she's still a contender um, in many circles if the president mm-hmm. gets a third right. uh, nominee, which is not out of the realm of possibility uh if you look at the current landscape, and we don't even know, of course, if this president gets a second term, then I think he would assuredly get a third nominee. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, I believe in her case, there were very clear statements that she had made about her views on um, life beginning at conception. Is that correct? And then that, I mean, not that that's the reason she wasn't picked, but maybe mm-hmm. the thinking was that someone who's so overtly out there in a way that could be interpreted as opposing Roe v. Wade would maybe not be able to clear the Senate. Right. I mean, you know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, choosing a, a Supreme Court justice is always kind of this cloak and dagger stuff. And then there's the element where Trump is the person making decision. And we don't really know how he makes decisions in general. <laughs> I don't um, know if he knows how he makes decisions. <laughs> exactly. Um, that, that, like you just outlined a very strategic scenario that he may or may not have considered um, when actually making this, this pick. <laughs> Um, but the uh, so yeah, I mean, with 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 Barrett, you know, she had both both Kavanaugh and Barrett are Catholic, mm-hmm. um, and both of them wear their Catholicism, you know, on their sleeve. You know, Kavanaugh was had there are pictures of him, you know, serving the homeless this week with Catholic Charities, something he does regularly and he's very proud of, and he mentioned in right after he got nominated by Trump in his initial speech. Um, but Barrett was definitely someone who had uh, she had written authored a, a piece back in the 90s where it was like justices should rec- may, maybe should recuse themselves if they are Catholic. And it's a um, uh, a case about um, the death penalty. And so for her, it was like this very loud version of her faith. Um, uh, according to many uh, observers, there was the famous uh, – I said loud because they, she, while well, during questioning when she was put on um, the bench, uh, I believe it was Feinstein who said, you know, the dogma lives loudly within you. And that was this, this um, quote about her. Mm. Um, whereas Kavanaugh, you know, if, if that is the case, it is it – is, it is, he, he doesn't wear his um, religious – uh, perspectives in the same way that Barrett does. Now, here's the thing: he could decide cases the same way she would, and that's right. kind of the scenario. That that's kind of the the so much of the smoke around this is that we're not totally sure where whether if those cases were put for, before him, how he would land. In fact, I think one of the ways in which Neil Gorsuch was successful is during his confirmation hearing. Many might recall, you didn't really walk away with a good sense of his views on uh, several of the major issues that he might have to contend with as a Supreme Court justice. He was able to really uh, deflect from a lot of the uh, questions that he was uh, handed down when it came to, for example, issues like Roe v. Wade and um, even LGBTQ issues. 
what are some? I mean, obviously, this term, uh, this Supreme Court term, recently mm-hmm. came to a close. Um, one of the highly anticipated decisions was actually with respect to the question of whether or not a baker was able to deny uh, service to a same-sex couple, um, or he refused, I believe, to to participate, as he said, in their um, mm-hmm. ceremony by baking a cake uh, for them. But then the Supreme Court, all, they essentially punted on that case, right? They didn't right. actually rule on its essence. I wanted to kind of bring that back up because something similar could very well make its way to the court once again, perhaps through a different path. Um, I mean, not the exa- not something that's so identical to that same case, but that asks some of these fundamental questions. Um, first, can you just kind of recap for people what exactly what exactly they did with that particular case, and how we might see a return to these issues when perhaps we're looking at a conservative, a much more conservative-leaning court, what the implications would potentially be. You're talking about the Masterpiece mm-hmm. Cake Shop? Yes. Yeah, that was an interesting case because the um, everyone everyone was kind of hoping, both sides were hoping that there would have been a firm decision on that one way or another. Like, does, you know, does the, does the baker um, able to just deny service to an LGBT couple in the case of a wedding? And, you know, is it a free speech issue? Is it a religious freedom issue? Et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the court just didn't do that. What they didn't said was rule about that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, um, they ruled had, uh, had had handled the case improperly by projecting anti-religious animus towards the, um, the baker himself. Now, there's disputes over whether or not that it actually constituted anti-religious animus. Um, but the Kennedy in particular, you know, was was among those who were saying this this constituted that that's this is what this actually represented, um, which is honestly why it was a little confusing for a lot of legal scholars when the travel ban decision came down, mm. because in one case, it was very important that there had been explicit anti-religious animus mm. expressed by a public official. And that was why the case was decided, as opposed to in the travel ban case where you had pretty overt evidence that a public official named Donald Trump had uh, said quite a few things about Islam and the impetus for the travel ban, um, but then that was dismissed as different, as it were. Mm. Um, And so it's very plausible that we could have another case like the Masterpiece Cake Shop come up. And it's also important to remember that, you know, there are cases underneath that about, you know, whether or not under Title VII, um, LGBTQ people are represented as a uh, protected class under the sex element of discrimination and if those were to come before the court it's still an open question as to how it will decide Mm. yeah so relatedly one of the things that kavanaugh has been explicitly clear on is that he doesn't think that presidents a sitting president should be distracted by things like ongoing investigations or subpoenas or things like that i'm curious how does that mesh with the um, I guess, evangelical and very conservative religious voting block, because there's this argument that Trump has been placed there by God. Right. And so, like, if that is this indisputable power that he has, that he was placed there by God, you would think that they would uh, kind of see eye to eye with Kavanaugh on that, that, yeah, he shouldn't be distracted or questioned. His authority shouldn't be questioned. Um, you, yeah. So that's that is the big lingering question is whether or not, you know, you can you can, you know, side against the president. Um, so I, I, I doubt given uh, I, I doubt that he believes theologically. Well, actually, it's an interesting question within the Catholicism. This is, gets into the religion elements. You know, multi, a lot of people on the court are Catholic. Um, it's, it, it, and it, many in Congress, too. Isn't it exactly. something like 33 percent? It's almost 
a third of Congress, I yes. believe. Yeah. And 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 in Catholicism has multiple expressions, which Kavanaugh himself uh, admitted during his initial speech. You know, you have Sotomayor and um, Kavanaugh on the same court, um, potentially, and they have very different visions for that. Um, I, uh, you know, Kavanaugh has not, as of yet, signaled that he believes that Donald Trump was anointed by God for the presidency. Um, that would be very interesting if he did. <laughs> um, the, but I mean, but this is, you know, what, what sounds to your point, it sounds um, ludicrous to have to deal with that in a political context. But it's not ludicrous anymore. That's actual political discourse in um, in America in 2018. And, um, you know, uh, you could consider that still a fringe belief, but it's definitely something that might come up. Uh, in terms of maybe not the argument that's made in the decision, but the argument that's made by the people who are arguing other things to him. It could show up in an amicus brief. It could show up in you know as an undercurrent from different um, mm. uh, conservative religious groups or conservative you know legal firms that send amicus briefs to for a decision. So um, I don't think his argument against you know it, it, it is 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 predicated on the idea that Trump um, that that God said that Trump should be president. But but it is certainly uh, you know it, it would make a lot of those people happy if he cited um, that you know no you cannot um, you know hold a president accountable legally as you would a n- normal citizen. Well, it was just last week that Scott Pruitt, while resigning um, as the administrator of the EPA, uh, had a statement uh, that a resignation letter, I should mm-hmm. say, um, very much. Uh, was indicative of his Southern Baptist uh, faith, which he has said time and again has been very informative of how he uh-huh. um, has interpreted his life and politics. But there were many references to God and uh, the president as having been part of a broader mission uh, by God and and really talking a great deal ab- about the president. Some of these uh, terms that I think I think really just had more to do with the thinking among some of the people both within the administration and around the president as to um, sort of this concept of a higher power and how it reflects on this presidency. But I think on the question of just Russia, I think that's going to be a big issue that Democrats will likely raise is what did you mean, Brett Kavanaugh, when you Mm -hmm. said that a president should not be distracted by an investigation? Uh, Now, he, he was calling actually at the time on Congress to pass a law um, right. that that would settle this issue rather than having it, you know, be dealt with uh, as an indictment uh, coming from, you know, special counsel. Right. But, of course, a lot of people have interpreted this as Brett Kavanaugh saying that the president has the right to appoint or fire a special counsel, which is mm-hmm. one of the biggest uh, concerns around Robert Mueller. And we'll have to see how that one uh, plays out. But I just wanted to ask you before we let you go, um, you know, because you, you talked about Kennedy, and one thing that was really interesting was, you know, he did in the travel ban, although he sided with conservatives in upholding um, the administration's mm-hmm. authority to enforce the travel ban, he he took what was still a somewhat rare step of authoring his own, was, I don't know if it's fair to say authoring his own opinion. He had his own separate, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I think he had written more separately about uh, some of what the president had said right. um, on the campaign trail. And I think, did you see that kind of a legacy move? What, what did you make of that? Uh, honestly, um, it might be a little bit of a legacy move for him to put on the record how he felt about some of those comments and, you know, to say, but then to say, well, it was, it was different, but it's still bad basically. Um, but, I, but honestly, I think a lot of, uh, observers were surprised that this was the legacy that Kennedy wanted to go out on. 
mm. um, that the cake shop and the travel ban were, you know, how how he wanted to close out his tenure. Um, now, that might be the, the fact that a lot of legal observers, you know, had expected him not to just side with conservatism. And the truth was, Kennedy was deep conservative from start to finish. He just was a weird one, quote unquote, um, for, for a lot of these decisions because he didn't fit neatly into a lot of the boxes that people made for him. But um, but it was it was it, it did not seem consistent with his thinking for him to not um, given the cake shop case. It, it felt it, scholars told me it felt um, directly inconsistent. It felt, you know, almost hypocritical for the travel ban case. So it's it's if let me put it this way, if he was trying to um, preserve his legacy by including that addendum. It didn't, because or at least with a lot of people who were upset with the decision, because they're still upset with it regardless. Yeah, absolutely. I think it'll be fascinating to see how people look back uh, at this moment, as well as to see what the path ahead looks like for Brett Kavanaugh. Jack Jenkins, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Don't forget to follow him at Jack M. Jenkins. We'll be right back after a break, so stay tuned to The Bill Press Show. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Welcome back to The Bill Press Show. Uh, Ray, what do you got going on in the rest of the world beyond uh, Trump? Oh, geez, it's hard to look past Trump because he takes up so much of the oxygen in the air. But um, some other stories we have going on. Everybody remembers the awful terrible crisis in Flint, Michigan, right? With the water um, being contaminated and the government essentially turning a blind eye to all of the people in Flint. Well, we all know Elon Musk, the billionaire who is behind things like SpaceX and Tesla electric motor cars. He has made a commitment. He said on Twitter yesterday, please consider this a commitment that I will fund fixing the water in any house in Flint that has water contamination. And then he added, no kidding. So I think things are looking up, and I think that this is an example of how private businesses can, I guess, fill the gaps where the government is refusing to step up. Has he talked about how he plans to do this exactly? Details TBD, I think, <laughs> but I think that it involves lots of money. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I mean, here's my question about this, though. Like, Elon Musk said he was going to build a submarine to, like, rescue the Thai boys from the cave and by the time he was done with the submarine they were already rescued like how long yeah. is it going to take for him to clean this water I'm not sure but I imagine that it cannot possibly take longer than the government has 
Fair enough. Yeah, that one. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's see. What else do we have going on? As we mentioned before, I'm going to take some time to plug our podcasts. We release one every day at 10 a.m. right after the show um, where you can hear these extra bits, the five minutes that you don't get um, if you're listening over the radio. So you can find that on iTunes, on our website, anywhere that you find your um, podcast. Feel free to download it, rate, review, comment. It means so much to the whole team here at the BP Show. You can also weigh in and have your thoughts heard at BP Show on Twitter and in the chat room every morning while we are live broadcasting www.youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yes, and we obviously would love to hear from you. We've gone covered a lot of ground already this morning. Uh, obviously, I want to welcome Dara Lind, who covers immigration. Uh, she's a senior reporter at Vox, and um, we're going to be talking a lot about uh, where things stand on the family separation issue. Um, there's a lot, frankly, we could go through. In ter- in <laughs> lots of moving parts. L- lots of moving parts, especially with all of the various legal uh, chal- legal challenges and where uh, some of these court rulings have landed, mm-hmm. uh, the status quo, and then also even just this whole um, debate over ICE and its future, I think, is something that I would say actually de- Republicans are talking about more than Democrats are talking about. Well, literally, I mean, yesterday we heard that Republicans were going to put a bill, like we're going to put Representative Mark Pocan's bill on the floor to abolish ICE, and Democrats, including Representative Pocan, immediately turned around and said, "If you put it on the floor, we know you won't. It's not serious, so we're going to vote against it." So now Republicans are putting a bill on the floor to abolish ICE that no Democrat will vote for. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of the spectacle that we've gotten used to. Actually, we'll leave you really quickly with Paul Ryan's comments on this issue before we take a quick break. And then we'll be back to have dive right into this discussion, which I'm this really looking forward to. That that gets gangs out of our communities, that helps prevent drugs from flowing into our schools, that that rescues people from human trafficking. They want to get rid of this agency. It's the craziest position I've ever seen. That's yeah. what Paul Ryan had to say about um, bringing up a bill that he knows. Um, won't actually pass, but uh, it's not the first time we've seen it. Interestingly enough, he didn't want to bring up a bill on terrorists because he said the president would veto it anyway. Uh, so we'll, we'll be we'll be back, and, and Dara, I'd love to get your thoughts after this break. <laughs> Show. All right. Uh, welcome back to the Bill Press Show. Sabrina Siddiqui here in uh, the hosting chair for Bill on this uh, Friday morning. And uh, Daryl from Vox is with us uh, to break down the latest on immigration. Um, you know, the, the a federal judge, of course, gave the Trump administration a deadline, two deadlines, I should say. One mm-hmm. was to reunite um, those parents who have children under the age of five. And then the other, of course, was for the other, um, those over the age of five who right. are in 
federal custody. Uh, and, and, of course, the administration did not meet this initial <laughs> deadline. Uh, it was on Tuesday, I believe, yes. to reunite those under the age of five. Um, you know, do we have a sense of how many? There, I think there were 102 such children in federal custody. and uh, Yeah, as of as of Sunday night, they had given the ACLU, who are like the lead plaintiffs and so are kind of, you know, cracking the whip on this, uh, the, a list of 102 kids. They, on Tuesday, said, actually, it's 103. Um, or I, I guess on Thursday, they said, actually, it's 103. And we've, we've succeeded because we've reunited 57 of them with their parents. And the remainder, we've decided, cannot be reunited with their parents at this time. And they offered various reasons for that. Some of those are, like, pretty obviously things they can't get around. Like, one parent has communicable disease. They want to wait until the ch- until that has, you know, been that they've recovered to reunite them. Some of the parents are in federal or state criminal custody. And so they can't just send kids to reunite with them in jails. Um, some of them, they've kind of decided that the parent has a criminal history that makes it unsafe to reunite the child with them. They're not saying what that criminal history is. And so the ACLU is going, okay, you can't just say that. You have to tell us. But, you know, there there are also 12 parents who have been deported already. And they are saying, well, you know, we can't get in, t- in touch with those parents very easily. Like, that means we couldn't reunite the child. And, you know, there are definitely questions about how much of this is the federal government genuinely trying and failing versus, you know, they just dragged their feet. So the ACLU, they're not asking for, like, contempt of court or anything. I think that there's been this kind of fantasy that, like, the minute the government missed the deadline, you know, DHS Secretary Christian Nielsen would get, like, clapped in handcuffs and sent to jail for contempt of court. But they did, and we're going to see today if the judge in the case is sympathetic to this, they asked for a more aggressive reporting timeline for the government to tell them where they are on reuniting the rest of the kids between now and the next deadline, which is two weeks from yesterday. And they asked for the government to put up a mental health fund Mm. for the kids who have been separated to, like, deal with the trauma associated with that. So it's going to be interesting to see if that's considered, you know, an acceptable remedy for the extent to which the government's been kind of caught, you know, lagging and catching up to this right and and this all came uh this week at least uh, this this came after a in a separate ruling a federal judge refused the administration's request to modify what many people refer to as the flores court settlement or flores agreement in short which um essentially said that Children cannot be kept uh, or detained, I should say, for longer than 20 days. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, the administration was trying to use this as its excuse for having separated the children from their parents. Um, What they really would probably want to do is just to, you know, indefinitely detain these families together. But instead, um, you know, breaking with previous administrations who did not interpret this settlement in the same way. That was how the whole family separation um, policy was was born in some ways. Right. Um, So so. What ended up happening then is at least for some of these family units where there are children under the age of five, uh, the administration then was, I suppose, left with no other choice but to release these families. And, and they have released at least some of them with um, ankle monitors in, into alter, alternative to detention programs. Now, mm-hmm. one of the reasons I bring this up is because the, this, this president spent a whole lot of time um, derailing against what he referred to as catch and release Um but it was what previous administrations had essentially done is, well, we are monitoring these family units to ensure that they do, for example, show up to court dates, 
Uh, have they essentially reverted now to what previous administrations were doing? So the short answer is yes, although, I mean, even during the peak of family separation, not all families were getting separated, not all families were getting detained. They, you know, weren't making a big deal out of this because the entire one of the primary purposes of the family separation policy was to send a message of if you come, we're going to be super tough on you. So we don't really have numbers on you know, how many families were getting separated, detained, released at any time. But it does appear that they're kind of defaulting back, at least for the time being. Now, the question is, how permanent is that? Because right now they are on, you know, they, they are facing a court ruling. You know, the, the, they, they actually had asked the judge in the who had made the Flores ruling on 20 days, like, hey, it's 2018, more people are coming in now. Uh, surely that means you can reverse your earlier ruling, right? And she issued a ruling on Monday night saying, no, 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 no. Like, children's rights are still children's rights. This is not their fault. Uh, so they're, you know, they're not in great legal standing on that. But both that judge and the judge in the family separation case have said very clearly we're not forcing you to release families. If a parent is being given a choice between indefinite separate between separation and indefinite detention, they can choose one or the other of those. That is okay within the scope of these agreements. So, like, it's not that the government can't actually force. You know, most people would say that's a terrible choice to put a parent through. But legally speaking, no one's really representing that the government can't force them to do that. So, they. It's an option the government could take and that it hasn't taken yet. And so the question is, is that just a capacity issue? We know that they don't have a lot of capacity to detain families right now, that they're like trying to spin up capacity at military bases, for example. Are they waiting to start giving families that option of indefinite detention until they have the capacity for it? Or have they quietly decided that maybe this is a political fight they want to stop fighting because the outrage over family separation was so huge that they don't even want to be seen as coercing parents into maybe taking that choice? Because mm. I'm kind of curious. I mean, when it comes to this choice that you pose um, between uh, you know separation versus continuing to be detained, I mean, when you talk about this 20-day limit, mm -hmm. um, is it really that ingrained or intended to be that ingrained where let's just say you have you know children who are being detained alongside their parents mm -hmm. and it's day 19 but the there's a you know there's going to be a bond hearing in in six days right no it's, days. it's not like the 20 day limit has never been quite as firm at like it's been it's a guideline, right? And it's a guideline, frankly, because the Obama administration went to this judge in 2014, 2015, when they were when they were the ones defending against this suit and said the minimum, you know, we can we can reasonably expect that within 20 days they can get bonded out, you know, mm -hmm. in, in most cases. So, like, it's not a very hard and firm thing. There are questions about, you know, if it's day 21 and the family is still in detention, what exactly are they supposed to do to use their Flores rights? Um, but, yeah, it's not something where the federal government's hands were never tied quite as tightly as they said they were, right? They always represented this as, well, on day 20, we have to release the child. And so the question is, you know, do we, like, we can't release, they always tr portrayed it as we can't release the parent, we have to release the child. And in reality, they were supposed to release the child. And the question was always, did they have to release the parent as well? But 
Yeah, they could be kind of working within the Flores Agreement if this were really a capacity problem. But they've maintained that there is a criminological reason to detain parents for the pendency of their proceedings, which is going to be longer than 20 days. If you're a parent and you are you know, pursuing an asylum claim, it takes a couple of weeks to a month to even get your screening interview. Mm. And then you have to wait and see if you're approved for that interview. And then you're being put into court proceedings to actually adjudicate your asylum claim. Like, that's a months-long process. If you're out of detention, it's a years-long process. And the government isn't, you know, isn't necessarily putting the resources into expediting that because the president has said on multiple occasions that he doesn't want any more immigration judges, which is what would make that process go faster. <laughs> it, it's 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 striking, certainly, because I, I, one question that I do have is, OK, so we know now that it, I think more than 50, at least now saying roughly 57 of these units have been mm -hmm. reunited. Um, has it been apparent that there was any real plan in place to reunite these families? I mean, obviously, they were they were ordered by a federal judge to do so. But. What does this process look like? Because they also had a separate deadline initially, which was to at least make contact between these parents and their children by phone. And it seems like at least, you know, I know in conversations I've had with the ACLU, they were unable to do that for many of these family units. Yeah, they weren't able to track down where the, you know, where the parent, where the children were versus where the parents were. Yeah, I mean, there was not only was there not a plan, but I think we have really suggestive anecdotal evidence that some of the people who were involved in this process and like not necessarily policy decision makers, but like line border patrol agents and even to a certain extent people who were kind of taking these kids into custody at the Office of Refugee Resettlement where they were being separately held did not think that they were, that they were supposed to reunite, that families were ever going to get reunited. Um, mm. You know, we have anecdotal evidence of Border Patrol agents saying that you're never going to see your kids again. Uh, it's been really hard. This One of the things that makes it very hard to report this story is that there are lots of stories like that that, you know, we'll hear from lawyers. And you, you want to verify that. And you go to the DHS and you say, hey, I've heard these really disturbing things. And they'll say, unless you can give me a case number, we are going to deny this because we don't think it's happening. And you have to give us the specific case number for us to track it down. Mm. And of course, lawyers don't want to kind of blow the cover on their clients by doing that. So it's, it's been this really weird dynamic. But there are several instances of lawyers mentioning that. And, you know, the government, which said before this court order that it was it totally had a plan in place to reunite these families, it had this whole system set up where they could be put in, in contact. Then the court order came down and the Secretary of Health and Human Services came on the phone with a bunch of reporters and said, well, in a lot of cases, all we have to go on is what the kid says. And, you know, kids can't always be trusted to, like, be clear about what happened to them. And like that was not that doesn't seem to be true, but it's an indication of just how little how ill-prepared they were to actually deal with someone expecting them to reunite families and there being a deadline like we do not know how well documented it is in any given kids case file we know mm. that in some cases the people who were getting them as like temporary foster parents didn't even know that they had real you know at like birth parents who they'd come to the u.s with so really it's kind of impressive honestly that the government went from being you know, kind of even as recently as a week ago saying we just don't know so much 
to saying, all right, we've identified all 103 of the kids we have who are under five. We've either reunited all of them or explained exactly why we can't. They've all been traced to their parents. There's one really weird case of a child who might be a U.S. citizen and might be the child of a U.S. citizen that is the big remaining question mark. But other than that, they appear to have actually been able to re- placed kids or you know reconnect kids with parents at least in the system but that seems like something they wouldn't have done had the judge not said you have to do it and you have to do it now right and as you know they've said that there are a number of these children from this group of 102 which later became 103 under the age of five who they said don't qualify for reunification and as you know you know the ACLU is sort of pushing back on some of it saying okay if you're saying that the parents have you know criminal history or criminal records what exactly do you mean because some of this is about discretion as well and i was curious the reason i even raised that issue is one of the questions people have is okay so the the president signed this executive orders to to no longer mm-hmm. separate um children from their parents so he said to end family separation which frankly was his policy to begin with why he needs to sign the executive order to reverse it is a separate rabbit hole that is too frustrating maybe to go down in this moment. But Especially because the executive order never actually it, says stop right. detaining it never or stop it separating families. It doesn't say stop separating um, but the, it, because it leaves this big caveat, which is if they deem that, that yep. the child is unsafe or, you know, with, with the, you know, adult who is with whom the child has crossed the border, then they can still separate those two. Um, you know, if they have doubts over whether or not that adult is the child's parent, they have all these carve outs, essentially, which which enable them to still separate children from their parents. And so I was going to ask if it, is, the, is there any evidence to suggest that they are still separating children and parents? Have they largely stopped doing so? Do we know where things have stood since the grand signing of the executive order that, that didn't actually end family separation <laughs> in its text? Yeah, this is, I think, one of the big questions that I am... I haven't heard horror stories, um, which like is a horrible way to, to say things are going okay. Um, but I haven't heard people on the ground say, "Hey, we're representing." You know, there are groups on the Mexico side of the border that like, you know, make sure that people are sending or going to, I mean, to ports of entry with ID documents. And who have kind of raised concerns in the past saying, hey, we know that this family got separated, even though they presented themselves legally at a port of entry. Like the government says that they didn't have documents. We know they had documents. We haven't heard any of those lately. That, again, whether this is a pause while they try to figure out what's going on, whether it represents a permanent shift is unclear. But like the difficult thing on some of these discretionary, you know, who has a criminal record stuff is that. The standards for when a child who comes to the U.S. without without an adult guardian, like how they can be placed with an adult in the U.S., they're really high standards, right? Because they're designed for protecting kids, making sure that they're not placed with human traffickers, making sure that they're placed with close relatives where that's available, but that the close relative can like support the child and can help them through their court case and that kind of thing. That system is not for vetting a parent who was just separated from their child two weeks ago. Like, it is not designed for that. And so one of the things that is kind of a difficult position for the Department of Health and Human Services to be in is that they have processes in place for determining when a parent, when an adult is suitable, but going through those processes is 
kind of you know it, it it's very it's impossible under the under the tight, tight timeline of the court order but it's also seems a little bit disrespectful to the parent who didn't abandon their child mm. and and i I was wondering, you know, all because we, as we've talked about, those who who have been reunited and they the deadline that was missed for those under the age of five. What about the then those over the age of five? Now they that was a, I think that was thirty days they had to yes, reunite so, all right. of the because there there are nearly three thousand families who were separated, right? I mean, at first they said it was twenty three hundred, and then right, suddenly yeah, it became three thousand. We, we don't know. We know that it's it's the, the, what they told us was fewer than three thousand, and that was total. <laughs> so if you subtract the hundred and three, then fewer than twenty eight hundred ninety seven. Um, so we don't. We're gonna know today probably the the latest. Uh, order from the judge said that, you know, by I think today's hearing, they had to offer like their first estimate of, of or their first accounting of how many kids they were talking about. Because right now we're dealing with under two weeks for them to reunite their remaining, you know, and given that it took two weeks and change for them to reunite, you know, 100 kids, yes, you assume that this is going to be a little bit easier because they are working with the ACLU, who's in turn working with people on the ground. You know, it, it it does seem like things have been moving faster for the last week than they were to the week and change prior to that. Probably it's going to be a little bit easier when you have kids who are over the age of five, who in many cases are teenagers. They may have more information about their parents. But, like, it is not clear whether this is a realistic deadline. And, frankly, the ACLU is not super pleased with the way the government has been acting so far. The judge in the case... You know, it seemed on Monday that he really was very understanding toward the government. And then on Tuesday, he turned around and said, I'm not shifting any of these deadlines. Mm. I know you're not going to meet them. I assume, you know, we'll we'll see if we if enough of this gets met that I can say it's in good faith. So the government's really under crunch time right now. And again, like the prospect of being held in contempt of court is super unlikely. Federal judges really don't want to hold the federal government in contempt of court just because like that's not. That doesn't change anything. Mm-hmm. You can't reunite families just by holding the government in contempt. But it's not clear whether the government is going to end up having to kind of do more in the, you know, retribution side of things. That they're going to have to kind of do that if the ACLU is going to come up with more things along the lines of this mental health fund so that the government is going to have to kind of atone for what it's right, done it's in done. a more active way. And all the while, uh, the president has struck an unapologetic tone over this entire ordeal um, before he left for Brussels, uh, to where he was at the NATO summit. He had been asked about the um, administration missing that deadline on Tuesday and said, well, you know what? Don't come here illegally. That's, uh, you know, that's actually the real issue here is don't come here illegally. And, and he kept uh, reinforcing this notion of uh, catch and release, mm-hmm. and um, I'm just curious, can you just kind of walk people through, you know, this this concept of catch and release? Because I think I, you know you you've written at Vox so that it's pretty much a myth, right? So the the idea behind catch and release being quote unquote being a problem is that you know. In normal criminal cases, you usually, like, have a bond hearing, you know, often you can be outside of jail while your case is pending. 
uh, the government has said that in immigration cases, if they release anybody from custody, they're just going to escape into the U.S. They're never going to show up to their court date. They're never going to fully pursue their asylum claim. They see it as a way for people to game the asylum system. That it, The thing is that they actually have identified a real problem, which is that a lot of asylum seekers, particularly families, don't show up to their court hearings. Um, but they've jumped from there to, well, that must be an act of malice on their part. And there is really suggestive data that that is not the case. There is a, a study that a couple of legal advocacy groups just did that I wrote about um, where they got, in addition to kind of having the data from the government on, all right, how many families aren't showing up to court and something like, you know, 70 percent of these cases get ended with people getting deported or getting orders of deport deportation because they're not showing up to court. And then they went back and talked to their clients or people who they had reached out to and said, hey, did you know that you missed your court date? And often they said, no, I've been calling the hotline and, you know, the hotline said I didn't have a court date yet. Or, yeah, I know because I didn't find out until the week before because my lawyer never told me or. In one case, I, you know, this woman was living in an abusive household in California and like escaped and moved to Florida, uh, but couldn't get her couldn't get her court date moved to Florida where she was living. Tried and tried and tried, never got a response back from the court, and couldn't afford a last minute plane ticket back to California for the hearing. So like missed her court date. So there are some there are real indications that there are problems with the system. That if the government's primary concern was we want to make sure that everyone shows up to court, that everyone goes through the proper legal process, that either you get approved for asylum at the end of this or you don't, and if you don't, you go back. They could do that without mm. keeping people in detention. They could do that more cheaply than keeping people in detention. And so it raises the question kind of both of, well, why weren't they doing this to begin with, but also, all right, if they are, in fact, kind of defaulting to releasing parents after, out of detention for now— are they going to invest in this or are they just going to kind of sit and sulk and grumble that they weren't allowed to do what they wanted to do? Mm, absolutely. And I, I it probably does, this is not the same, of course, as those who are here pursuing asylum claims, but it probably doesn't help that there have been increasing uh, reports of undocumented immigrants who are already in this country being arrested in sensitive spaces like courtrooms, right. which is a break from what was had the guidelines under previous administrations this uh new administration not even new anymore but this administration does not actually have immigration enforcement priorities because they, john kelly threw those out in his previous role as uh the head of the homeland security department right and you know what's interesting is the they the legal advocacy groups that were doing this study actually did say that some p parents were afraid to show up to court because they were afraid of getting arrested and that was in 2015 and 2016 under obama and i think it's you know, it, as an immigration reporter, something that I deal with a lot and that I think I've actually spoken about on the show before is that, you know, often the actual policies being pursued are somewhat narrow, like the courtroom policy, you know, was new under Trump and it doesn't extend to like schools and hospitals and other areas that still are off limits. But it's really hard to communicate that to like people who are making their everyday decisions about do I go somewhere I could get deported or not, right? They're not necessarily keeping up on the minute details of where ICE has said they can and can't go. And so it's not that surprising that even when ICE agents weren't showing up to courtrooms, parents were afraid that that was going to happen to them. Right. And now, of course, there's been this um, 
debate that we alluded to uh, about ICE and its future, and um, it all kind of stemmed from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, of course, mm-hmm. um, in, in in New York, having um, had abolished ICE as part of a, her platform. Um, there are a handful of Democrats in Congress who've supported uh, starting from the ground up, as they call it, uh, you know, kind of starting from scratch uh, and 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 reinforcing this idea that ICE is not working in its current form. Um, how much does that have more to do with the administration itself and the priorities that they have or have not put in place than the agency itself and whether or not the agency is in need of some dramatic reform? Uh I would say that Democrats' response to this, you can pretty easily answer that question by looking at how many of them were calling for ICE to be abolished under Obama, right? Because a lot of the story of ICE as an agency has been that there's been a very clear institutional culture of line officers feeling that they deserve a lot of discretion in who they go after. Mm. And, you know, under Obama, we're extremely resistant to directives coming down from the top about deprioritizing certain people who didn't have criminal records who had been in the U.S. for a long time. So, you know, you could logically have seen Democrats saying, gee, if the if these if this agency isn't responding to the president, then we need to rethink the agency. And they weren't doing that. Right. Like there was a lot of ambivalence among Democrats when a Democrat was running the immigration enforcement machine, especially because during Obama's first term, he was setting deportation records. Right. But I think that what we're seeing right now is the result of kind of documentation and groundwork that was laid by activists under Obama, where people Mm -hmm. really were kind of pushing local Democrats to resist ICE cooperation and the kind of white progressive national Democrat turn against Trump when it is easy to paint ICE as like Trump's ground troops. Absolutely. Well, the politics of immigration are certainly endlessly fascinating. And uh, Daryl, thank you again for joining us this morning. Don't forget to follow her work at Vox.com and on Twitter at DLynn. We're going to take a break and be back with our pal Jen Bendery. So stay tuned to The Bill Press Show. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Welcome back to The Bill Press Show. Sabrina Siddiqui here, political reporter at The Guardian, filling in for Bill. Uh, saving the best for last, if I may say so myself, because I've got my friend Jennifer Bendery here in studio. Good morning, Jen. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Jen, of course, is a great political reporter at HuffPost, whose work you can follow um, on Twitter at Jay Bendery and a former colleague of mine. So I'm always happy to have you here. Uh, you know, we, we kind of kicked off the show and I want to go back to this because it's so wild um, by talking about what we woke up to, which was the president having um, picked a feud with Theresa May, the prime minister he's due to sit down with during his visit um, to England as we speak. Um, he gave an interview with uh, the Sun. Let's just actually replay some of those comments. Yeah, let's get into it. Let's get right back into All right. it. Here he is um, talking about Theresa May. I would have done it much differently. Uh, I actually told Theresa May how to do it, but she didn't agree with She didn't listen to me. That was about Brexit. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on to say this about if a soft Brexit happens. No, if they do that, uh, I would say that that would probably end a major trade relationship with the United States. And last but not least, he decided to go 
again um, reinforces attacks on the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, uh, who is the Muslim mayor of London. This is, of course, as there are already widespread protests to Trump's visit across uh, London, and uh, this is what he had to say about that. You have a, a mayor who's done a terrible job in London. He's done a terrible job. Um, and if you don't want me take also. a look at the terrorism that's taking place. Look at what's going on in London. I think he's done a terrible job. And lest we forget his comments on Boris Johnson. Oh, yes, there's more. <laughs> yeah, oh, oh, yeah, there's more. All right, here we go. I'm not pitting one against the other. I'm just saying I think he'd be a great prime minister. Yeah. I think he's got uh, what it takes, and I think he's got the right attitude to be a great prime minister. Now, of course, uh, Theresa May is already in a very vulnerable position. Uh, there, there's been a lot of speculation over whether or not she would resign as the prime minister um, of the UK. Boris Johnson just earlier this week resigned as the foreign minister after all of these lovely words exchanged. <laughs> Trump and uh, Theresa May are due to hold a press conference shortly, so it'll be uh, fascinating to see what happens. But, Jen, I mean, look, you covered the Obama White House You've covered, uh, you know, of course, the Trump administration, too. And what do you what do we even say when when the president shows up to meet with one of the closest uh, and longest standing U.S. allies and, and starts off by giving an interview to the Rupert, Mur Rupert Murdoch owned son, uh, insulting the person he's about to sit down with and uh, attacking, you know, the mayor of its largest city? And in their own country. <laughs> this is, he just arrived in their country and he's insulting the leaders of the country. I, I this whole trip, the, his whole international trip this week has been incredible. I mean, he went to Brussels and, and blew up all kinds of norms uh, with our relationships with France and Germany and all of our supposed friends. And then he's, he's arrived in Britain and he's trashed the leader of Britain in her own country right before uh, they're having a, press conference together momentarily right now and uh right after he trashed I, I don't even i don't even it's he's just leaving a, a trail of chaos i mean he he's blowing up all the norms that we've had before and um while this was predictable in some ways you never know exactly what he's going to do and these are some pretty delicate matters so it's it's in some sense it's you know not surprising because he this is the way he operates and we know this but it is it is, in another sense, really uh, unnerving because, you know, NATO, for example, is a delicate situation and it's not something to just, you know, get uh, to aggressively suggest that we are going to leave, mm. you know. I mean, I was going to say, because we talk about this, we kind of return to this theme time and again. It's not the first time that he's attacked a foreign leader with whom the U.S. has a close relationship. And from the very early days he of his uh, presidency, he had contentious conversations with the Australian prime minister, with the president of Me the Mexico, the outgoing president of Mexico. Um, and when you kind of look at this in totality, what do you think the actual impact is? I mean, what do you, what, how do you think this affects the U.S. on the global stage? Well, I think here we are in July 2018, so we're at, what, a good year and a half into Trump's presidency. So this is not the, the markings of the early stages of a president trying to whip up his base. This is a year and a half in to a president still trying to cater to his base. And it, it's I think it's becoming increasingly um, uh, dangerous for the United States because it's now been consistent. And there's only so many times that the United States can alienate our, our international friends 
over and over and publicly humiliate them and then smile and say everything's fine, those kinds of things leave scars. These aren't things that are just everyone can just blow over. And you can tell that that the people who work closest to Trump in our administration are horrified. I mean, there's like cleanup efforts after every step of this trip. Mm-hmm. There's high level officials going in and trying to make peace with our friends in NATO and saying, like, we're, we are 100 percent committed to NATO. We are not going to pull out. We're not going to bully you. Then we go to the U.K. and the president insults uh, Theresa May. And so, you know, there's going to be a cleanup crew saying we don't really mean that. Like, we are your friends. We stand by you 100 percent. You are one of our longest allies. So there's becoming a, a, a clear division to me between what the president is doing. And then you see some of his you see the cleanup crew coming afterwards. Right. In fact, Senator Orrin Hatch tweeted or subtweeted shortly after the interview uh, with The Sun published uh, yesterday evening. Uh, his staff put up a photo of him meeting with Theresa May uh, last year and it's like a throwback Thursday saying kind words. Clearly a veiled way to send a signal that this is one of our close allies. Watch what you say. But I don't know. Subtweets don't really seem to do much when the president ultimately is the face of this country, the public face of this country. Um, and I, it's, it's hard to see what the impact would be. But this also comes when he's about to sit down with Vladimir Putin in Helsinki. Um, and what would you say is the, are, would, are the concerns going into this meeting? Well, I think Putin's probably delighted by what has happened this week. He's watching Trump go through like a tornado and just blow through traditional United States alliances, which makes Putin happy because then that that rattles this core of of countries that have been opposed to Putin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then heading into his meeting with Putin, I think, of course, it's alarming because Trump has said he wants to meet alone with Putin when he gets there with no aides in the room, nobody taking notes, no witnesses to what is being said. This is highly unusual, and particularly in the case of Trump and Putin, it's a bit alarming because not only is Putin known for being a shrewd negotiator and who knows what kind of concessions he might be able to get out of Trump in this private meeting, but this is all happening in the context of this ongoing investigation here uh, into the into Russia's role in the, in the 2016 presidential elections and, and their hand in helping Trump win. So it's it's almost like a movie. I mean, it's just... There's, it's crazy that this is where we are. <laughs> yeah, and the president claimed uh, that he will bring up the issue of uh, election interference uh, with Putin when they sit down. Um, he also said that he views Putin uh, as a competitor, not as an enemy. Uh, actually, we have those comments. Let's take a listen. He's a competitor. You know, somebody was saying, is he an enemy? He's not my enemy. Is he a friend? No, I don't know him well enough. And here he is saying that he will bring up meddling. We want to find out about Syria. We will, of course, ask your favorite question about meddling. I will be asking that question again. So (laughs) your favorite question, he's talking, of (laughs) course, to the media. It doesn't seem like he's that concerned about it. In fact, he followed that up by saying, well, he said he didn't do it. So if he says he didn't do it, he didn't. I guess he says he didn't do it. Yeah, he can keep saying he's <laughs> going to ask about it, but we already know how it's going to go. And he's going to say he said he didn't do it. So we're done. But I still want to know about the P tape. 
I think there's a P tape out there. I think this is why Trump is so beholden to Putin. And if they're going to meet one on one, maybe that's what they're really going to talk about. This, Where is the P tape? This is, of course, um, the rather explosive suggestion in uh, this Christopher Steele dossier, former MI6 agent who um, compiled that dossier about uh, the Trump ties to Russia. And uh, one of those uh, claims that wasn't necessarily substantiated was uh, that. Trump had engaged with prostitutes in what is known as a golden shower. You can look it up because we'd rather probably not get into the dirty details. Let's get into the details. <laughs> Come but, on, but people need to wake up but here's to the what thing. is happening. Yes. But here's the thing. So, so okay, it hasn't been substantiated, but we later learned from James Comey in his book that Trump asked him to investigate the claims about the tape. The tape, he says, doesn't exist. And Comey was kind of saying, even you know, even if there's a one percent chance he that this tape is out there, he essentially that the president framed it as Melania would be furious, which is like not actually denying its existence, but I actually think that what's overlooked about this is okay, we could say what we want about some of these salacious claims, but but one of the central premises of this dossier is that Russia was in possession of incriminating information about Trump, and that they could use that to blackmail him and to wield influence over him and his at the time potential administration um and lo and behold there's a legal battle underway with stormy daniels with whom the president carried out an alleged affair who was then paid hush money by his longtime personal attorney michael cohen and you can't help but wonder if there are some dots that you could potentially connect when it comes to some of these allegations about the president in his private life, that maybe there is incriminating information out there that other governments, such as Russia, could well be aware of. I, This is just my theory, okay. but I have to believe that Russia and Putin has something incriminating on Trump. The way he kowtows to him is, is unreal. I don't know if it's a P-tape. I don't know if it's... Uh, some, you know, there was some like money laundering that's gone on in the past with Trump and Russia and his his hotel business. Um, I just it's the, the his loyalty to Trump, the way or I'm sorry, Trump's Trump's loyalty to Putin. It just keeps coming back to this theme. We've all seen it play out where he he won't criticize him very much. He won't call him the biggest, you know, one of the major threats to the United States. He blows through all of our allies and bends over backwards to to please Putin. So why would uh, this man, who we now have seen in office for a year and a half, who we know operates basically like knee-jerk reactions to things and who only looks out for himself, why would he be so careful to ever alienate Putin? There's something weird. So I am I am determined to find the P-tape. And if it's not a P-tape, I mean, I in, in all seriousness, that I do think there's something weird there that yeah. that we haven't found yet. And I my gut tells me there's some financial matters in the past that right. that are connected to uh, Trump's business and Russia doing some shady deals with him. But all that to say, all the theorizing aside, what is clear is that Trump is prepared to do whatever whatever he wants and whatever it takes for him to not alienate Putin. Yeah, and, and we'll see of maybe what special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation uh, turns up with respect to uh, the, co the contacts between the Trump campaign and Putin, whether or not those go up the chain to Trump himself. That's one, been one of the big unanswered questions. Mueller, of course, is taking his time uh, conducting what is clearly a very thorough and meticulous investigation, more than 19 indictments uh, of individuals uh, 
in connection to that investigation, three companies as well. Uh, several of the people indicted are were senior officials in the Trump campaign or his former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, for example. So we'll definitely be watching much more on that front. I kind of want to switch gears because something that else that you've been covering and that we also talk about in the show is, of course, the battle for the Supreme Court. Um, the president's nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, what his uh, prospects look like. Um, it seems like this would come down to a couple of moderate Republicans as their build, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. There are, of course, a few red state Democrats who are um, up for re-election who did actually vote for Neil Gorsuch. This is different, but Joe Manchin, Joe Donnelly, Heidi Heitkamp. Of course, Republicans, though, can just confirm Neil Gorsuch with a simple, sorry, Brett Kavanaugh with a simple majority vote because for Neil Gorsuch, they had changed the rules. So what does the landscape look like? I think it's important to start with the reality, which is that Brett Kavanaugh is all but certain to be confirmed. Mm -hmm. So let's just put that out there. Mm -hmm. um, anything can happen, but that's the most likely scenario here. Uh, that said, I think what you're going to see happening is Democrats. Uh, we've at HuffPost we've been interviewing a lot of uh, Democratic leaders to figure out their plans on on how to fight Kavanaugh. Um, and their plan is essentially this: they they're not going to try to blow up the Senate. They're not going to do what some uh, progressive activists have said, which is to shut it all down, just shut down the Senate, prevent any business from getting done, do everything you can to stop this man from getting through. Um, Democratic leaders don't feel they have the ability to do that. And we can, I'll spare your listeners here the, the procedural reasoning, but they don't feel that they can do that. So their plan essentially is to uh, focus on abortion rights, specifically Roe v. Wade, and health care, specifically the Affordable Care Act, and mm. just hammer in over and over and over again how Brett Kavanaugh would, is a serious threat to Roe v. Wade being overturned. And is a serious threat to gutting the even the most popular pieces of the Affordable Care Act, including what we all talk about, pre-existing condition protections and um, the things that everybody likes. So that's what Democrats are going to hit really hard on for the next month or two. Um, in the meantime, strategically, the, number, the numbers game is a little close here. You've got, with John McCain out dealing with his brain cancer, the majority in the Senate is 50 senators who are Republican and 49 who are Democrat. That is extremely slim. Republicans can't afford to lose anything, any right. votes. So that means they've got to keep the moderates, Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, in line with them. And that means the Democrats have to keep their people in line, which includes red state Democrats like Joe Donnelly and Joe Manchin and Heidi Heitkamp. So... It's those five names I just said are the ones that everyone's going to be watching. Those are the only ones who really are most likely to potentially flip sides. But it, it's so close in there right now that any movement on any of those five people is huge. And it was notable that Joe Manchin, when reacting to the nomination on Monday in his statement, specifically cited pre-existing conditions as a priority uh, for him, which I think maybe foreshadowing what the red state Democrats uh, might try and uh, position themselves around. Because if you're Heitkamp, Donnelly, and Manchin, maybe you can't stake everything on Roe v. Wade because the social issues are not as viable in these conservative-leaning states. But perhaps it will be healthcare, as you note, that they where they try and draw some distance as to why this nomination is different than that of Neil Gorsuch. 
since they did those three vote for Neil Gorsuch, but I think a lot of Democrats have argued this one's different because that just reaffirmed the balance. This one, of course, dramatically tips the scales. Um, you've done so much coverage around the courts and the judiciary, uh, and I think sometimes what's lost is the way in which uh, there's been such a transformation already under this president. Some might argue that the the way in which he has changed the makeup of the federal judiciary, that could very well be his longest uh, lasting impact. Talk a little bit about the ways in which you've seen it evolve under Trump. I don't think that it could be. I think that it already will be already because these are lifetime federal judges. And when a president is gone, these are the people who are there for decades after. You know, there's a saying about the two things that are that outlast any president uh, as their legacy are war and judges. Mm. And in Trump's case, he has been extremely aggressive about filling up federal court seats with his very conservative judicial nominees. So, for example, in his first year in office, he confirmed, I want to say it's like 12 or 13 circuit court judges. Those are very powerful judges. Those are one level below the Supreme Court. He has currently, he confirmed more circuit court judges in his first year than any president in history ever. Mm. So, and now here we are a year and a half later, he's still confirming them. He's blowing through them. He's filling up, he's already filled up about one-eighth of all circuit court seats, which is incredible. And these are, again, lifetime judges who have incredible power over major decisions that affect millions of people's lives. A lot of his nominees are very young, not, you know, like 40s, early 50s, which is young for a federal judge. Um, And almost all of them are being fed to him by the Federalist Society, which Mm. is a very conservative national organization of of lawyers, of right-wing lawyers. And Essentially, Trump has set up a pipeline with the Federalist Society to feed over very conservative nominees picked by the Federalist Society that Trump is essentially turning around and putting up as his nominees. So this has been a very well-oiled machine. Conservatives have been planning this kind of situation for years. Mm. This is not an overnight plan. This is this has been years in the making. It is the perfect storm for conservatives. They have a Republican in the White House. They control the Senate. And they have the Federalist Society all full of nominees ready to go. So they're just churning it all through right now. And it's, it's quietly happening. And it is an extremely uh, influential piece of Trump's legacy that most people don't pay attention to. And there's not a lot of diversity or any at all, one no. can say, Let's when it comes say to these appointments. His, his pick of judges looks like the cast of Mad Men. It <laughs> is all white men who are conservative. They're all also, I mean, you can, all their records have been vetted. I mean, a lot of these people are very anti-abortion. They're very anti-LGBT rights. They're, they have records of voting against cases involving civil rights and voting rights. They're against consumer protections. And when I say they're against it, I mean, their record shows that they have said things specifically on these issues or they have ruled as a lower court judge on a district court against these issues. So there are records showing how these people as judges will act. And it is... There's an alarming trend going on, and people don't tune into this too much because it's not very sexy, but it is the thing that will outlast Trump. Yeah, I think I saw somewhere that the nominees or the appointments, because they already have been confirmed, many of them, as you say, have been 90% male, 80% white. That's more than that. uh, And then, yes, a significant faction have a record of holding anti-choice anti-LGBTQ records, um, you know, but 
Brett Kavanaugh was a circuit court judge. Um, he was a district court. District district court. Oh, I'm sorry, you're right. Sorry, court. I'm sorry, you're right. Circuit court, DC circuit, circuit court. DC circuit court. Yes, but see, district and yeah, circuit. Yes. in there. DC um, circuit court. Because one thing people, uh, you know, have noted, and actually Jack Jenkins, who's here with us from the Religion News Service, uh, mentioned was he had dissented in a, an opinion that allowed uh, an undocumented teenager to have an abortion uh, while she was in federal custody. Uh, now, you know, of course, one can say that it might it's not it's, it might be a little bit different than how he might consider abortion related issues insofar as some people will differentiate between uh, someone who is a non-citizen versus someone who's a citizen. And but still, I think people saw that as indicative of perhaps his views on choice issues as well as on immigration related issues, which will be another big issue to watch after the travel ban ruling and some of the continuous fight over dreamers and undocumented immigrants in the country um but what do you think uh so you talked about abortion you do we know anything about brett kavanaugh and what he has said other than the one case that i cited have we seen much of a paper trail yes there there have been articles now coming out where people are digging around in his background and i saw something yesterday i think that talks about um Brett Kavanaugh, in a speech he gave last year at AEI, which is a conservative think tank in D.C., um, essentially uh, railing against the Roe v. Wade decision um, Mm. as uh, I I think he called it something to do with the separation of church and state. And he just he in in a nutshell, he said it was an overreach to to um, rule the way they did on Roe versus Wade. And so there are speeches he's given where he is like tipped his his hand on how he feels about certain rulings now you have to remember when he goes into his confirmation hearing all of these conversations we're having right now kind of go out the window because any question he's going to get in there he's going to say you know my my duty is to uphold uh, precedent precedent. right and you know i don't let my personal views you know make my legal decisions i'm a judge and my job is to uphold precedent and follow the law that's what we're going to hear over and over again so all these questions kind of don't they matter but they're not going to yield anything new in the in the hearing right ultimately i think we'll see him repeat what neil gorsuch did rather successfully which is to kind of dodge and deflect and which is what they neil all gorsuch do. said he would uphold precedent and then of course overturned a 41 year precedent with respect to public unions public sector unions so we'll see what happens but i think you're right he'll be confirmed jen bendery thank you so much for joining us and thank you everyone for joining us this morning Sabrina Siddiqui signing off here and have a great weekend. Happy Friday and stay tuned to the Bill Press Show. We'll be back next week. This is the Bill Press Show.